A lot of players stepped up. The defense stepped up. How exactly did the coaches perform against Utah? Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you if you haven't already, wherever you listen to or watch the show, which today is brought to you by Upside. Download the free Upside app, use promo code LOCKED, and get $5 more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. So, I liked a lot of the things I saw from the Oregon coaching staff on Saturday night. We're going to talk a lot about the coaches here on the show today. Those of you watching have probably noticed by now, Spencer, that's not your usual setup. I'm coming to you live from a hotel in Eugene, Oregon. So uh, pretty, pretty, pretty neat. You might know that city or might have heard of it from uh, time to time. But um, let's start with Dan Lanning. I give Dan Lanning an A plus for how that game played out. There are a number of reasons as to why. First of all, and maybe this isn't foremost, but this is certainly the thing I notice the most. His energy on the sideline is awesome. It's really awesome. And as someone who does a lot of play-by-play broadcasting, I've always found that it is helpful to me as an announcer, but also as a fan, to care about the game when I see the players caring about the game. But that gets magnified to another level when the coach feels that way too. And seeing Lanning so fired up, so engaged, even though just came off a heartbreaking loss, out of the college football playoff discussion, Dan Lanning knows what it means to win on a weekly basis, understands that there's still a lot to play for in this 2022 season, and you can tell he wants it, and he loves what he's doing, and it's a really great thing to see. And when you look at how last year's Utah games played out, it felt you can speculate for as long as you'd like as to why. But in both games, it felt like Oregon showed up and wasn't fully ready. Did you ever for a moment, a single moment in that game, feel like Oregon wasn't ready? Like they weren't prepared? Like the guys didn't understand what the assignment was? Like there wasn't an attitude about it. One thing I loved about the comments I've seen from Lanning going into that game and then coming out of it as well, I don't think he hid from the fact that last year was a double calamity against the Utes. Was never close, was never competitive. He wasn't a part of that, but a lot of his players were. And to me, that Oregon team played as a unit on both sides whether it was Bo Nix's gritty toughness, the defense's physicality and tenacity, whatever you want to talk about. That played, they played like a team that was avenging the loss from last year and also getting back on track after last week. And they were playing with that sort of attitude. And one of the most important responsibilities of a head coach is establishing a strong culture. And Dan Lanning, has clearly got that off to a really good start here at Oregon. Because you're going up against a team that beat that beat you down twice, not once, but twice last year, and you're coming off of a heartbreaking, crushing loss to your spirited rival. 
and you came out, and from the first snap, it felt like it was going to be different. And it was. And it was very different. So on that note, I give Dan Lanning an A+. Because a good or a great team, a good or a great program, when you go through challenges, when you go through tough times, they're to respond. And that was a response. And that starts with the head coach. He came out after the Washington game and said, that's 100% on me. It's probably, you know, not 100, but a lot of it in many ways was. And guess what? Took responsibility for that, owned up to it, got in the film room, went to practice, worked with the team, got better in key areas, and they were ready to play a really good football team. Utah's going to end the year once they thrash Colorado this week as the best 9-3 and team we've seen in quite some time. Probably since Oregon in 2015 with Vernon Adams, that team that had to play a couple of games without him. Vernon plays that whole season. I've said many times on the show, I will take this take to my grave. He plays that whole season. They go back to the college football playoff. 100%. 100% that happens. And... I think that Utah team is still a good football team. And Oregon just did a lot of things really well. And Dan Lang deserves a lot of credit for that. And in his first year at Oregon, the first time he's ever been a head coach, that's an A-plus coaching effort. How about Kenny Dillingham? I'll give him a B-plus for that game. He's dealing with a hobbled quarterback, which clearly impacted not just the running game, but the passing game as well. There have been a lot of plays this year that I think we've kind of taken for granted because Bo is so great, or he has been so great this year, that he extends to move the ball down the field through the air, and he's done that a lot. He's also taken off and run when a play breaks down, and that was taken away from the offense. And they came out, and they scored some early points, and then it sputtered because Utah is a really good football team. If you look at the second half and say, well, what was Dillingham doing on offense? What was this? What was that? Tough spot to be in. First of all, really good Utah defense. Really good Utah defense. They made adjustments. They took advantage of what they saw early on, which is, hey, Bo is not going to keep it in the running game, so we're just going to sell it for the running backs. And that was true. That's the right way to go about it. That's what smart teams do. They adjust, and Utah did. You thought they would. They have the personnel to do it for the most part. And I think you have to give them a lot of credit for the way they played against the Oregon offensive line, even though it was banged up. Putting up 20 points on them with Bo having just one leg, not a factor in the running game, can't really move in the pocket as well, which takes away some of the passing concepts that they utilized this year. I think Kenny Dillingham gets a B plus, but the only reason that it's not in the A category, because I was impressed with a lot of things, not everything, but Kenny Dillingham gave Utah seven of their 17 points. And that can't happen. That cannot happen. And as disastrous as that play was, it doesn't mean that Dillingham had a C minus D plus game. No. But it was really, really bad. It might have felt that way or, heck, even been that way in my eyes if Oregon had ended up losing that game. But they didn't. They didn't. They did just enough to win the game. And Dillingham, I thought, got a little predictable at times. Like I, I didn't love the Wildcat thing. Though, I I guess I actually understand it because if Bo isn't going to run, you need to create numbers in the box. So you motion him out, take a defender out of the box, and then 
I, I, I understand that it just didn't happen to work, um, but it's not what Oregon wants to do offensively. It, it's not a part of their running game. But going forward, I think there's a, a really big question for this offense going into the game formerly known as the Civil War. And that is how do you run the ball consistently without Bo Nix's legs? Because I don't think in one week he's going to suddenly be back to 100% and out there pulling it on a read option like we've seen him do all season long. I think that's a really big question mark. And I think Dillingham and the offensive line, which is banged up too, no Alex Forsyth and then Jackson Powers Johnson was off at one time. I think he came back into the game though. He continues to play really well. Ryan Walk did great things at center. All the snaps were good. That's a backup center. That's the biggest thing. Lest we bring up the, um, we'll just call it the Alamo Bowl. We all know the one I'm talking about. But I think that's a, I, I think that's a big question. Now, what about Tosh Lupoy? What about Oregon's defensive coordinator? A lot of interesting notes there. And one of you asked a particularly interesting question that I had on my mind anyway. Just like we've all got inflation on our minds, and if you want to go save some money and fight inflation, you have to check out Upside. You go anywhere. It, look, it's just an incredible app for anyone who does you know, somewhat strange and niche things like buying gas, buying groceries, or dining out with Upside. I don't have to cut back because I get cash back on every purchase to get started. Download the free Upside app. Use my promo code LOCKED and get $5 more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Next, claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside, check in at the business, pay with a debit or credit card, and get paid. That simple. Download the free Upside app. Use promo code LOCKED to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's promo code LOCKED to start saving money with Upside today. So question came in from Austin K. I believe this was on the YouTube comments, but by now you know how to ask me questions. YouTube comments at smalls underscore 55 or at locked on ducks, Twitter mentions or DMs acceptable. You can also tweet with the hashtag ask LOD pod if you want to do that too. Austin K asks Spencer, do you think landing took over defensive play calling during the Utah game? When asked about it in the press conference, he was quick to say it was a quote team effort. Although we have not seen effort like that from our defense all season. Hashtag ask LOD pod. Yeah, I love, love seeing that. Uh, okay, so here's what I noticed about the defense. Number one, it was night and day from what we saw the week prior. Is it possible that Lanning was calling plays? Yeah, but I don't. I don't think that's the case. I'll get to that in a moment. But one thing you have to consider is something I talked about going into this game. And my prediction was if Bonix played 31-23, I thought it'd be a lower scoring game than people thought because of the matchup. A lot of the ways that Vegas determines the lines, and they clearly undervalued Washington a little last week, or more like they overvalued Oregon's pass defense. But the way they determine lines a lot of the time, even though this team may be better than that team, and you look at a line and go, why is it like that? is because of the matchups and the styles that teams play. It plays into their analytical computer calculations and whatnot. And it's something that you should always consider as well when thinking about you know, how, how Oregon will match up against a particular team. I think they match up against Utah much better than they match up against USC. I think they match up against UCLA a lot better than they match up against USC in a hypothetical Pac-12 championship game. And for what it's worth, since it is Beaver Week, 
I think they match up well with Oregon State's offense, which I think is just kind of a, a lesser version of, of what Utah does. They run a lot of the same formations, a lot of the same personnel, same philosophy, same kind of limited weapons on the outside. I think Utah's actually got more weapons in the passing game. Their best offensive players are running back uh, in, in Damian Martinez, we'll talk about later in, in the week. But the the note that you have to start with there is, well, Oregon's defense was so much better this week. Lanning must have been calling plays. Not necessarily, because that's just a matchup philosophically and personnel-wise that suits this Oregon defense better. And that's an area that in... Uh, a couple years when Lanning and Lupoy can really sink their teeth into recruiting and implementing their system, getting guys who who fit what they want to do on that side of the ball. Hopefully this won't be as much of a concern. But that's where you start. The next step, because I had the same thought, like, man, you had three interceptions of a really good quarterback who was first team all pack 12 a year ago. You didn't allow any big plays down the field. You suddenly had pressure. And you were still stout against the run, as you always have been. Like, what what changed? I think Lupoy was still calling the plays. But there was a moment in particular that the cameras showed during the broadcast on the sideline that I thought was really, really telling. Oregon was on defense, and I think it was a third down. And Tosh Lupoy is still the guy sending the play in. Like, I didn't see Lanning you know, signaling in or going off of, uh, he, I think he always has a little, little play sheet or card in, in front of him or something that I hadn't seen. And maybe it's happened before, but it was pretty prominent. And I, I really don't remember having seen it in, in a prior game. And I don't think it's a coincidence coming off of that Washington game. It looked like Lanning was kind of like a helping hand for Lupoy almost. Right. Or like he was telling him what he wanted in that spot. Maybe it wasn't this specific play call, but he was telling him philosophically, hey, we need to do this or hey, they're doing that. So when he came in the press conference and said it was a team effort, Lanning might have had a few play calls in there. I still think Lupoy is the primary play caller, but it really did seem based on that comment and that scene. And then the results we saw on the field as well, even though it is a better matchup. I mean, that wasn't a good defensive outing. It was a dominant defensive outing. That was a dominant, they allowed two drives. They allowed two drives, stopping on fourth on one of them, and the other one was a touchdown. And then they had the field goal. Like, there were just not a lot of openings Utah to run through, and they weren't able to create many explosive plays in the passing game. So it was something really different. And I am totally fine with this, by the way, if Lanning is taking a more heavy-handed approach in calling the defensive side of the ball, because Dodge Lupoy's had a questionable career as uh, as a defensive coordinator when he's the one calling the plays, and he also hasn't done it in quite a long time. And so I think they saw what was happening last week, and Lanning doesn't want to intervene mid-game because that can really you know mess with the coach's psyche and disrupt the flow and whatnot. But it certainly seems that coming into that Utah game, he was planning and and seemingly did, based on the information that we have gotten, to have had a bigger role in determining what the defense did. Because Dan Landing takes a lot of pride on that side of the ball, right? He was defensive coordinator at Georgia. That's the side of the ball he's almost always been a, a coach for, whether he was uh, you know, a position coach or, or when he was a coordinator at Georgia. And you could tell that he took, not a, a offense isn't the right word, he, he took culpability and he felt ashamed about how the Oregon defense performed a week ago. 
And it did seem like he sort of inserted himself more into those situations. And whatever whatever took place, whether it was more during the week or whether it was more in-game or whether it was more of both, I was really happy with what I saw. And if the defense plays like that against Oregon State, we'll be just fine. Even if Bo Nix isn't fully healthy, Oregon will be just fine because running the ball in Oregon State is going to be easier than running the ball in Utah, even if you have a hobbled Bo Nix. So I, I think that that's encouraging, and I hope we see that again because if the defense plays like that against the Bees, they will also probably manage under 17 points because Oregon State has a really good running back. They've got a good offensive line. They are limited at quarterback and they have limited perimeter weapons. And that's a formula for Oregon's defense to have success. So whatever approach they took last week, I want them to bring it again. And and I do hope that Lang's involved because he was the play caller defensively at Georgia. Now, Kirby was obviously signing out. Like, head coach can always come on the headset, and it's why everybody wants to be a head coach. He can always come on and say, hey, I want to do this here. Hey, do this. Maybe he doesn't say the exact play call, but he can give an idea. Hey, let's go cover one. Or, you know, when he's talking with his offensive coordinator, hey, there's a weakness at this part of the defense. Let's get an outside zone or let's let's run a tie or, or something like that. That can always take place, and it does, which is why you don't hold a coach accountable for just one side of the ball. He's the head coach. He is responsible for what happens on both sides of the ball. He may have more influence on one side over the other based on his background as a coach, but you hold him accountable for what takes place on offense and defense and special teams. So I hope that continues. I hope he's a play caller because that's where everyone kind of, you know, labeled him as a whiz kid at, at Georgia's. They're like, man, this guy's a really, really good play caller. If Kirby Smart trusts you to call plays and you have that success, with, they had a bunch of elite personnel, but having elite personnel doesn't matter unless you have a great play caller. Go look at Texas A&M. So I, I think that that is a good, good sign for Oregon's defense moving forward. But I'm curious if we see those similar sorts of moments this week against Oregon State, where it looks like Landing is going, "Hey Tosh, we're going to do this," or "This is what we this is what we want to do here." Speaking of special teams, by the way, can we shout out Camden Lewis because that guy is absolute nails, stud, reliable, good leg, making his egg points and making all his field goals. He's missed like once this year. He had a 49-yarder against UCLA. I know he couldn't make a 54-yarder, which is why we didn't try a long one uh, against Washington. But that's not a spot that you that you expect him to be in. There are not a lot of college kickers who can do that. They're a very, very small minority. But Camden Lewis deserves his due praise. And I'm going to give him such praise after I tell you about Bet Online. Your number one source for betting info, stats, news, and analysis. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at betonline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. We're always the fastest and easiest way to get your betting fix. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts. Camden Lewis hits two field goals in this game, makes both of his extra points. And here's the thing I appreciate most about what he has done. When he first got to Oregon, highly touted recruit, yeah, he didn't look like he was up to it. He missed an 18-yard field goal in the Auburn game. He would miss extra points in that Pac-12 championship game. He was sidewalk kicks. I mean, he wasn't a very good kicker. He lost the kicking job. Did he transfer? 
No. Nowadays, in this very transient world of college football for players, I have double the amount of respect for guys who stick it out like Max Duggan at TCU, Camden Lewis at Oregon. Look across the country. You can find examples of it. They're just becoming fewer and further between of guys who lose their starting job and say, nope, I'm not going to leave where I'm going to go to some lower school and get playing time or whatnot. I'm going to earn my job back. And I remember when Cattleman was kicking, I thought, man, <laughs> that guy looks really, really good. And then when Lewis won it back, I thought, what? Wait, why? Cattleman's been so good. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, that guy deserves our utmost respect. And here's the thing about kickers. You never give them any attention or love because you don't hear from them very often, right up until you really, 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 really need them. Oregon won this game by three points. Utah missed a field goal. Where does that game go if Camden Lewis has the same miss? It wasn't a game winner in the final seconds, though he's had one of those in his career, 2019 against Washington State. But that guy has been so good. And Joe Lorig, the special teams coach, deserves a lot of credit. Because I talked about before the season, coming into this year, areas where Oregon can improve, special teams. And we haven't had for a touchdown, but I feel like the punt, the punting can improve. The punting can still improve. They might just need personnel in that area. But the kick returns, the kickoff coverage, the punt coverage, the punt returns, field goals, all that stuff has been rock solid. And you can't overlook how important that has been. And that's clearly been, it was an emphasis. Uh, I think during spring practice, I, I heard that that was something they started every practice with and and the previous staff didn't do that quite as often. And I I think that showed that it wasn't enough of an emphasis, but special teams, you need them to be special in a few critical moments and they get overlooked right up until you really, really need them. And Camden Lewis specifically has been at the head of it. I think Boyle's done a nice job generating touchbacks on the kickoffs too, but I I really am impressed with what Camden Lewis is doing because the thing I appreciate most about him is he's given me confidence Like when he goes out to kick a field goal, I expect him to make it. I expect him. I don't think he can make it. I don't want him to make it. I expect him to make it. And he has been. And he's been really, really good. Props to Camden Lewis. Guy is absolutely awesome. Joe Lorig, special teams coach. A quick note on Oregon basketball here before I uh, answer a couple fun questions that I got from, from two of you, which I greatly appreciate. So Oregon basketball the other night on Sunday lost to number three Houston at home. I was able to watch a good amount of the game because uh, Southern Utah women's basketball, who I'm in Eugene with for the game on Monday night, is uh, they're, they're playing the Ducks. So I was able to pop over and watch. And Oregon is not a team that is a world beater, but they're also not a bad team. Now, they played poorly against UC Irvine. They really, really did. They did not play poorly against Houston. They played quite well. Their defense is so good. They've got length. They've got athleticism. They're well coached, and they have an array of shot blockers and a lot of size. Kelly Ware is huge, and Folly Dante is a monster. And defensively, that team is good enough to go to the Final Four. Defensively. Here's the thing that's going to be a recurring theme as I continue to talk a little more basketball as the season goes on for Dana Altman's unit this year, they can't shoot. They, they do not have 
at this point in time, they do not have good shooters. They're also still kind of lacking a number one. Will Richardson's a good player, but he's a number two. But they were three of 22 from beyond the arc, and Houston was 11 of 22. They made 11 or 12. That's your ball game. They lost by 10. They were in that game, but they just miss too many threes. They were three of 22. That, like, that is the only stat that matters. This team can win the Pac-12 because they are experienced, they are long, they are athletic, they are well-coached. They just need to hit shots, and that's a big if going to be a recurring theme. Okay, let's get to a fun, a uh, couple fun questions here. Uh, my guy, Beginner Catholic, wants to ask, um, while you're golfing in Hawaii, how many birdies did you make? Uh, and then also, what's your ideal Thanksgiving meal and Oregon game replay that I would want to have on while eating said meal? Uh, I played three rounds in Hawaii with my dad, which were awesome. I was playing at the Wailea Gold and Emerald courses. We played the Emerald twice and Gold once. Both really, really fun if you ever get a chance. And I made five birdies the first day. Still managed to shoot over par. Um, <laughs> that's kind of the summation of my game. Um, I don't make enough boring parts, but then I did the last day. And then I only had one the second day. And I only had two birdies on on my final round, but then I, I didn't make any bogeys that day, which doesn't happen often, especially for me. It's usually a lot of birdies and a lot of bogeys when, uh, when I go play golf. Um, anyway, ideal Thanksgiving meal. I am a tradi- traditionalist for Thanksgiving meals. I am very much... So my mom makes this killer, killer Cajun turkey. Like it's, it's just, it's not like too Cajun or too spicy. Like it's still a Thanksgiving turkey, but it's got this nice Cajun spice crust on the outside and the gravy that comes with it has this kind of spicy herbal nature to it. It's the best turkey I've ever had. She makes it every year. Unfortunately, I won't be able to enjoy it this year. Maybe she'll mail me some leftovers and whatnot, but I'm a traditionalist on stuffing. I prefer a stuffing that is baked inside the bird, gives it a texture and flavor that you don't get when you just make it in in a baking dish in the oven, which can still be very good. But again, I, I like the stuffing the most that is cooked inside the bird. It is just, oh, that is prime, prime time stuff. Uh, again, tradition. Well, actually, no. I would swap out mashed potatoes for something that we've been making for several years. And they're these uh, potato. they're essentially scallop potatoes. You know, they're cut into medallions and then you uh, and then you layer them or you put a, a cream and spice mixture on top as you put it in this dish. And then you put Parmesan cheese on top and you broil that, get it nice and golden brown. So you have this kind of crispy cheese on top and then the soft potatoes and they're smooth and they're rich and they're they're creamy. I, I like those more than mashed potatoes, though. I love a good mashed potato. But those uh, those, those, uh, p- potatoes au gratin are, uh, I believe what they're called and they are sensational. I like a little cranberry sauce. Doesn't have to be anything fancy, you know, like preferably you make it yourself. My grandma makes great cranberry sauce. I like that on the Turkey. Uh, and then I, I'm a double pie guy. I, I want to have one slice of pumpkin pie and then one slice of some other pie, whether it's pecan, apple, Oreo, lot a lot of different ways you can you can go there but um yeah so i'm a traditionalist with uh, with all that sort of stuff but that, that's kind of like my my ideal meal and then my mom makes these parker house rolls that are to die i mean you, i could eat just those for thanksgiving call it and and call it a great meal um 
The guy who I'm rooming, rooming with for walking on YouTube is about to walk by in the background. So just don't, don't, don't be alarmed. He's, uh, he's cool enough. Um, what Oregon game replay would I want to put on? I, I thought about this one. It's, it's pretty tough. Like there are so many great games. It's just, just so many, but you know, the one I came back to, if I were eating a Thanksgiving meal and I had one Oregon football game to watch, I would go with the 2009 civil war. It was Thanksgiving time. Going against the Beavs, Rose Bowl on the line. I know that Rose Bowl didn't go how we wanted it to, but that game, having it all on the line right there and two fourth down conversions on that final drive to ice the game, give me that one. A lot of good options. Hop in the YouTube comments. Let me know what games you guys would roll with. I would go with that one. That is that is forever one of my one of my favorite Oregon football moments. Uh, last one from from my guy Peyton. What is your biggest what if for Star Wars? For example, what if Padme, Padme joined Anakin and went to the dark side? I understand the direction you were probably hoping I'd go with this question. Here's the biggest what if. What if they got competent writers and directors for the sequel trilogy? What if they didn't botch Finn's character? What if Ray was interesting? You know, those are kind of the biggest what ifs I've got. If you want to go plot specific. What if they made Finn an interesting character after they introduced him and then had him sacrifice himself and serve as a little bit of a martyr in The Last Jedi, which is a calamitous film outdone only by The Rise of Skywalker, which stinks. So that's kind of my biggest what if is like, what if they actually wrote the sequels in an enjoyable fashion? All right, that's enough non, uh, non-sports non talk for the day. Keep the questions coming. As you can see, you can ask me about Oregon. You can ask me about something else if you so choose, whatever it is, whenever it is. I appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and go Ducks.